why Christmas? Why did Jesus Christ come? He became one of us, Emmanuel, God with us. And the Word became flesh, John writes, and dwelt among us. J.I. Packer, ruminating on that, said, Deity reduced to 18 inches. Why? Well, listen to what Jesus says about that. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Paul echoed this in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 15, where he says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus also says about His coming in John chapter 10, verse 10, I came that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to give His life a ransom for many. Paul, thinking on that very true statement, and the Incarnation says this, that God rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had to come in order for us to be saved. And there's another thing that the Bible speaks of regarding the coming of Christ. It dovetails very beautifully into the statement that Jesus came to give His life a ransom for many. It's said by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. For this purpose, the Son of God appeared, that He might destroy the works of the devil. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. As we continue our study of the book of 1 Peter, we find ourselves in the fifth chapter, verses 8 through 11, which will serve as the basis for the morning message. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to begin at verse 8 and read through verse 11. But before I do that, please remember who the human author of this epistle was. Peter. And this epistle is known by the experts as a hortatory epistle. That's a big theological Word, which simply means it's designed to exhort us and encourage us as followers of Christ to strive to become more like Christ. The theme verse in the book is, be holy, for I am holy, to become like Him. But not only is this epistle a hortatory epistle, it is also His story, namely Peter's story. We're going to see that as we look at this passage more closely. Look at verse 8. We'll begin with this verse and we'll go to the end of the paragraph. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter gives a description of Satan that calls for our attention in this eighth verse. Look again at verse eight. Your adversary, the devil. Let's stop there just a moment. That speaks of the fact that Satan is our accuser. The reason I say that, the word translated devil literally means one who slanders or accuses others. And this is false accusation. But that doesn't deter the devil from accusing you and me. The Bible says about him, he accuses the brothers. That means those of us who are in Christ. He accuses us incessantly, day and night. The Bible tells us in Revelation 12, verse 10, he accuses us day and night. Zechariah gives a depiction of that. We read of a scene where a man by the name of Joshua stands before the tribunal of God. And at his right hand is Satan. And we see Satan is accusing this man. And by the way, this man Joshua was the designated high priest of Israel at the time. And here is the accuser of the brothers accusing him day and night. And what do we see the Lord saying to Satan? The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Does the rebuke of the Lord take effect upon the devil in that particular instant? Absolutely. Because, as Martin Luther was fond of saying, never forget that Satan is God's devil. God is sovereign over Satan. The Lord rebuke you. And what do we see next? God speaks about how Joshua is a brand plucked out of the fire. Isn't that a picture of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus as He destroys the works of the devil? We were under some sort of, not spell, but control of Satan because the Bible says that we... We're in the world, and the world lies under the control of the evil one. That's where we were before we were snatched from the fire, as it were. What a wonderful gospel we have. What a wonderful reason for God to become man. The necessity of it is clear because of our sin to save us. And then, in that picture in Zechariah, the prophet goes on to describe... How God the Father, the judge of this man Joshua, says to the angel of the Lord, get him some clean garments. Get rid of those old filthy rags which he's wearing. That's exactly what the Lord has done us. He has clothed us in his righteousness. He has clothed us in himself. That's why the Bible tells us that we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil accuses you and me repeatedly. That is his way of behaving. Do you ever feel condemned by Satan? Now, when we sin, we need to confess our sin and repent of our sin. After we come to Christ, we still sin. When we do, we need to confess it. That means to agree with God as he looks at those kinds of behaviors that are, in fact, sinful. But once we confess them and we repent of them, what does he do with them? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The Bible says, he who conceals his transgressions 
will not prosper. But he who confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Satan is our accuser. Here's another thing we see in this passage of Scripture. Looking back at verse 8, where it says, Your adversary, and let me stop here just a moment. This word is sometimes translated enemy. It's not the normal word for enemy. Some in the room are lawyers. And this is a courtroom word. It's the word describing a person who takes another person to court to sue that person. So he is an accuser and a false accuser at that. But he's also a prowler. Have you ever thought of the devil as a prowler? Well, that's what the Scripture says, isn't it? Look again at verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around. Prowlers don't want people to know what their plans are. They want to sort of sneak in, do their dirty work, and escape before even being noticed. The devil masquerades as an angel of light. He doesn't like it when people like me or you tell the truth about him, expose him. The devil's a prowler. And he is one who seeks to do us in. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. The work of accusing. The work of prowling. Christ got Satan clearly defined for us as the Scriptures are helping us to see him today. He's also a growler, isn't he? What does the Bible say? He prowls around like a roaring lion. He's a bully. He's an intimidator. We see examples of this in the story of Jesus in the Nativity. We see the example of Herod the Great, this so-called king of Israel. He was a big bully, wasn't he? He was so much of a person of authority that he had all the little baby boys under the age of two put to death when the Magi came and asked about the whereabouts of the Messiah. Where was he to be born? And then the scribes and the Pharisees were consulted and they told Herod, well, he's born in Bethlehem. Herod gave the news to them, but he was a bully, wasn't he? He was certainly insecure. And there's a certain amount of insecurity in the devil, too. He's a bully. He likes to bully us. But we've got a big brother who can handle him rather well. You know what I mean? Did any of you ever have a big brother who took up for you? Or in some cases, a big sister? I was the eldest child. I never had anybody take up for me. It was a bummer, I'll tell you. It's no good to be picked on, is it? But the Bible actually describes Jesus as our elder brother. And he is our defender. And he takes care of the one who prowls and growls and falsely accuses us who are in Christ. Look again at verse 8. This description continues. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's a devourer. This word translated devour 
is a word that is used in the Greek version of our Old Testament in the book of Jonah to describe what the great fish did regarding Jonah. He swallowed him whole. That was what Satan would love to do to you and me. But he cannot accomplish that mission. He certainly nibbles around the edges of our lives. But he cannot devour us, even though that's what he would love to do. Let's stop just a moment and ask the question. When are we most susceptible to these works of the devil? I thought about that in relationship to Jesus. And when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, there were two states of being. One was physical, that probably made him more susceptible than he had been to the temptation of the devil. But another was more emotional. The physical was he was hungry. And sometimes when you get hungry and I get hungry, we become a little more irritable. Most people do get more irritable if they've gone very long without food. And when we're hungry... We're more susceptible sometimes to the overtures of the devil. But the second one is probably more dominant in our lives. The emotional one. Jesus was alone. Now remember, the Bible says it's not good for man to be alone. Jesus is the prototypical man. He's the perfect man. He was alone. Have you ever noticed that the devil comes to you when you're alone? And there are times when you and I, who typically walk with the Lord, there are lots of people present this morning who have the habit of walking regularly with the Lord. But what I've discovered is that when I have a day off, then I'm more susceptible to the temptation of the Lord. It happens to me. I let my guard down. There's never a moment when I can afford to do that. I can give you evidence of that. I'm not going to talk about the particulars, but I do know in my life, That's when I am more susceptible to the work of the devil. This is a clear description of Satan, isn't it? We need to know who our adversary is. He is an accuser. He's a prowler and a growler and a devourer. But greater is he who is in you, if you know Jesus, than he who is in the world. That's good news, isn't it? Let's move on and spend the rest of our time considering the defeat of Satan. Look again in verse 8. I skipped the introductory remarks here in verse 8. Verse 8 begins by saying, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Verse 7 we saw last week. Look again at it. Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. And certainly the Bible forbids worry. We are not to worry. It's sinful to worry. Jesus says, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for today has enough trouble its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, it's a sin to worry. Worry is forbidden. But that does not mean that we are not to be alert. We are called and commanded to be watchful, not to worry, 
But at the same time, be watchful. Be alert. In the book of Nehemiah chapter 4, Nehemiah is instructing those who are rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem as to how they're to carry out their work. And this is what he says. In effect, he says, pray as though everything depends upon God and work as though everything depends upon you. And as they worked, what these workmen did, they armed themselves. They were ready for any eventuality, any attack. They prayed to their Lord and they armed themselves as they did the work. This is something that will be characteristic of you and me. If we are going to defeat the onslaught of the enemy, our adversary, we're going to have to be men and women of great prayer. Don't you imagine? There's no answer but one answer. Yes, you would imagine if you thought about Peter. Remember, this is his story in a way. His life is the backdrop against which this story that's written here is set. Remember when Peter, James, and John were invited by Jesus to follow him into the deeper recesses of the Garden of Gethsemane? And Jesus gives them orders. He said, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. That must have been in Peter's mind. What was his response to that command? He fell asleep, didn't he? And we don't need to knock these guys too much. You and I would probably have fallen asleep too. They were exhausted. Not just physically exhausted. They were emotionally exhausted due to the events that had preceded those moments. Unbelievable, for sure. In Moffat's translation of this part of the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 8. He translates it this way, be cool, be calm. We have to be vigilant and not lose our composure in a situation like this, to be of sober spirit. Now, there are some very important football games which are going to be occurring, a couple today, one tomorrow night that I'm particularly interested in. And then the playoffs are just a few weeks away. And at this time of year, there are comparisons drawn. Is Tom Brady the greatest quarterback who's ever played the game? What about Roger Staubach? What about Peyton Manning or Ben Roethlisberger? Well, I hate to say this, but I think the greatest quarterback was not a cowboy. I think he was Joe Montana, who was a San Francisco 49er. Now, there were quarterbacks who were more gifted physically. But when it came to the fourth quarter, with the clock ticking, the two-minute warning, 80 yards to go to win a game, I would say he was the greatest quarterback who ever stood under center. And it was due in large part to the fact that he was so calm. When a lot of quarterbacks who were much more gifted than he took the snap, they faltered. Why? Because they didn't have that inner confidence and calmness that Montana had. We, in effect, are in the two-minute warning period all the time when we follow Jesus. 
and the attack comes. We have to be ready. And we can be calm. Why? We can be calm because He who is in us is greater than He who is in the world. We need to understand that. We don't need to get all flustered like we typically do when we are under pressure. But we're to cast our cares on Him and He will take care of us, is what the Scripture said. We're to be ready, aren't we? To be alert. Here's the second thing that the text teaches us. This begins in verse 9. We are to resist our enemy, the devil. Look at verse 9. But resist him. The word translated resist simply means stand up against. That's what it really means. It's a compound word. Stand up against. Take your stand against the devil is what this means. And we're to do it the way Jesus did it. How did Jesus address the attempts that Satan made to cause him to fall? What did he do in every instance? He appealed to the Word of God, didn't he? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So if we're going to win this victory, we resist the devil by coming against him with the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit among the pieces of the armor of God. We're not just to resist him for ourselves, however, but also for others. Let's look at verse 9 again. But resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Let me stop just a moment and look at the word brethren or brothers, depending on your translation. This is the word actually brotherhood. And it means the whole body of believers worldwide. We're part of something bigger than our little expression of the church, aren't we? We love our church. But we're part of something bigger. There's the body of Christ in El Paso, the real church. In every church, there's a remnant of believers in every church. And we're part of that church. We're part of a church in the United States and in this hemisphere, the northern and the western hemisphere, and all over the world. And people are suffering today for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to think about them and pray for them. And to support them. And to be encouraged by the fact that they are showing extraordinary strength and bravery under conditions that we cannot imagine. They are, every day, because of their faith in Christ, they are put in a position where they could lose their lives. But think about what the Word of God says in Revelation 12.10. After it says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night. But how did they overcome those who are referred to there? By the word of their testimony, right? They did not love their lives even to the point of death. And this is what the Lord would have us to understand. That we are people who are to stand up against the devil. And pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. Knowing that they probably are praying for us too. I would recommend a great book to you. It's called Through Gates of Splendor. It's written by Elizabeth Elliot, who was widowed 
in her 20s. She and her husband Jim Elliott went with four other couples into the jungles of the Amazonian Ecuador. And there, where they found themselves, they were reaching out to a group of indigenous people known as the Alcas. And they worked for many months to try to establish contact with them and a relationship that would allow them to share the gospel with this primitive people. They found a good place where they could land their plane on a sandbar on a river there in Ecuador. They had made plans. They had sent signals to these people that didn't even have a language that was written. They sent sign languages. They dropped gifts in advance. And they landed there with the great expectation of leading those people to the Lord Jesus Christ. But instead of leading those people to Jesus, this is what happened. They were all martyred. They all died. The only eyewitnesses were the murderers themselves. There were no other eyewitnesses. When a search party went out and found the remains of these men, all of whom had been lanced to death, speared to death, their bodies were given a proper burial, and their personal effects, really all that was left to bring back were the wedding rings that the men wore, and they all had watches. Their watches were returned. These five widows, including Elizabeth Elliot, who writes about this in Through Gates of Splendor, as they sat around a makeshift kitchen table in one of their little houses in the nearby village where this occurred, they would, as you would expect, they would take the ring of their deceased husbands and the watch and they would fiddle with them as they talked about and ask questions as perhaps you and I would if we had lost people in such a way. I wonder who was the first to die. I wonder who was the last to be attacked and die. And I wonder what he thought as he saw his brothers in Christ being murdered. I wonder. I wonder what they thought about us, a wife and children. I wonder all these things. I wonder if they suffered long or were they killed instantly, the kind of questions. And in the book, Elizabeth Elliot refers to what Jesus says. And then also to what Jim Elliot her deceased husband had written in his journal when he was a college student in his early 20s at Wheaton College at that time. In his journal he said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Echoing what Jesus said, Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels shall save it. After this story made its way around the world, not just back to the U.S., where all these missionaries hailed from, but all around the world, letters and cablegrams began to pour in to these widows in that remote area in Ecuador. A letter came from a Japanese college, and the body of the college made up principally of followers of Jesus said, we are praying for you. 
a letter came from a Chinese church in Houston saying the same. We're praying for you. Another letter came from Alaska, from an Eskimo village where there was a Sunday school. And these children, fifth graders, had written letters. We are praying for you. And another letter came from Des Moines, Iowa. An 18-year-old boy said, I have read the story of the martyrdom of your husband's. And I am giving myself totally to the Lord. And I'm asking the Lord to empower me to take one of those deceased missionaries' lives as a missionary. You know what happens when we think about what God's doing in the lives of brothers and sisters around the world who suffer in a way that we do not suffer? And we enter into that. We must not forget that we're not the only ones resisting the devil. There are many people around the world. And we need to pray for them. We need to stand up against the devil. In James chapter 4, the Bible says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Isn't that good news? Stand up against the devil and he'll flee from you. This is oftentimes experienced with regards to bullies. Have you ever stood up against a bully? The Christmas story is probably playing nonstop today. And I haven't watched the entire story, but I know, and I think the little guy's name Ralphie. I may have made that up. Is that right? Thank you for helping me with that. I hadn't thought about it until just now, actually. But Ralphie is picked on. Remember this big old guy? I don't even know his name, but he's picking on Ralphie and beats him and everything. So one day, Alfie just decides to stand up against him and beats the tar out of it. Not like Jesus, of course, but he does anyway. And he never has a problem with this dude again. If he'd done that to begin with, it would have been over. The torment would have been over. We need to learn to stand up against the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What we oftentimes do, we love these little nuggets of truth. They are great. That's a great truth. But we need to read those statements in context. What comes right before that statement Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Right before that, the Bible says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. We have to submit ourselves to God. Right after that, it says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I have to draw near to God and that will ensure that I'm going to have the presence of God and therefore the protection of God in situations when I do resist the devil. What will he have to do except to run? When God's there, where Jesus is there, We submit to the Lord. We put our faith in the Lord. Let's go back to this text, verse 9. But resist him firm in your faith. Look down at verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are to be firm in our faith. The devil through suffering. Let me just say this. When there is suffering in your body and or there is sorrow in your heart, the devil loves at those moments to come and plant seeds of doubt in your mind as to whether God really loves you. Or God really is personally involved in your life. We know He's personally involved because of what Peter says 
when he describes him as the God of all grace. And he himself will do certain things that we're going to look at in just a moment. So we are to put our faith in the God of all grace. There's only one other time in the writings of the New Testament where God is described in the way in which Peter describes him by saying the God of all something. And Paul does it in 2 Corinthians 1 where he calls God the God of all comfort. Isn't that good to know? That our God is the God of all grace and He is the God of all comfort. Listen to what the Word of God says. Paul speaks to Timothy. He said, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, My grace is made perfect. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And my grace is sufficient for you. The grace of God is not simply the entry point into the family of God. It is the sustaining power for living the Christian life, for enduring, and also acting in faith and obedience to the Lord. It's the grace of God. God uses suffering to complete us. I'm not trying to impress you here. I've got finally gotten a smartphone, but uh, yeah, amen. I'm just hoping I can make it work here. I think so. I saw this plaque, and in the center of it is a square, and it has this preface. When you need grace, remember. And then listen to the things that we're called to remember. Remember, Joseph was rejected. God gave him grace, and he became ruler of Egypt. Remember, Moses took a man's life. God gave him grace, and he led the Israelites to freedom. Remember that Esther's people were to be killed. God gave her grace, and she saved a nation. Remember that Mary Magdalene was to be stoned. God gave her grace and she was forgiven. Remember that Peter denied Jesus. God gave him grace and he became the leader of the church. Remember that Gideon was afraid. God gave him grace and he defeated an entire army. Remember that Paul's ship was sinking. God gave him grace and saved those with him. Is that encouraging? This is the God of all grace. He has that power for you and for me when we don't think we have anything left in the tank. It's not about us. It's about our coming to an end of ourselves, actually, where we reach what the psalmist writes about a group of sailors who went to sea and they were in a storm which God had sent and they had done everything they could And the Scripture says they were at their wit's end. And literally, the Hebrew says they had exhausted all their wisdom. They were seafarers. They had done everything they could. They were at sea. They were going down. They cried out to the Lord. And He gave them grace. That's our Lord. We're to put our faith in the God of all grace who uses suffering to complete us. No, I'm I'm going to ask this question. Think about the period or periods of time in your life 
when you grew the most? Have you got your bearings on that? Was it during times of relative peace, externally speaking? Or were they times of trouble? Now, nobody likes trouble. I don't like it. And I don't think anybody in here would volunteer to be afflicted. But the reality is, it's in times of trouble that we really come to the end of ourselves and the only place we can go is to the Lord and depend upon Him, which we should have been doing all the time anyway. To depend upon Him, to submit ourselves to the Lord, to put our faith in Him. Now, let's look at the passage again. Verse 10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ... There is an eternal weight of glory waiting for us if we understand this book of 1 Peter. If we understand what the Bible teaches, there's an eternal weight of glory if we respond by resisting the devil, by submitting to the Lord, drawing near to God. And notice the way Peter describes this God of all grace who calls you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself do four things. Let's talk about these quickly. He will perfect you. And the word translated perfect was a word which was used to describe the repairing of broken fishing nets in the book of Mark. It's used to describe outside the New Testament the setting of a broken bone. It was used to describe someone who brought two warring factions together and they reached a place of harmony This idea of God perfecting us suggests there's something that's not quite right in us. We're not ready yet. We still are incomplete. God is at work in us and He uses trouble to accomplish the purpose of making us more like Christ, who, by the way, learned obedience through what He suffered even though He was perfect. That is what we know to be true. This word suggests the mending of the broken. Are you a broken person? The Lord has probably broken you, but He mends you. In the book of Hosea chapter 6, it talks about how the Lord injures us, but He heals us because He needs to break us in order that we can become complete, mature. He restores what is lost. Some of you are lost. You're adrift. And God is working in your life to call you back, to restore you, to perfect you, as it were. To supply that which is lacking in your life. To use you more fully. I remember one of my favorite Disney movies as a child was Peter Pan. And later in life, I learned that the author was a man named James Matthew Barry. Barry was the ninth of ten children. When he was six years old, his next older brother was two days before his 14th birthday and he was killed in a skating accident. He was, of all the children, the favorite of the mother. And you can imagine the devastation she experienced. And this man, James Matthew Berry, loved his older brother. And he sensed, even as a little boy, how much his mother loved the deceased child. 
And he wanted to comfort her. And what he did, he would go in and he would take the clothes of his brother, who was twice his size, put them on, and come in to try to comfort his mother. His mother was crushed by this accidental death of her son. When Barry was reflecting on that period in his life as a child and in his mother's life and her grief, this is what he wrote. That is where, talking about that period of grieving, that is where my mother got her soft eyes. And that is why women ran to her when they lost their children. Why? Because she understood, didn't she? She had been broken by great loss, and she responded in the right way to that loss. So, God will perfect us. He will also confirm us. This word means to make solid as hard rock. And that's what God does us. He doesn't make us hard if we respond properly. There are two possible responses to trouble difficulty, suffering. One is to collapse. Just the weight of the situation causes us just to give up and lose faith. Remember, that's what the devil wants us to do, to lose faith. He works hard at that. The other possibility is to be tempered by the experience. To be toughened and at the same time become more tender. So, he himself perfects us, he confirms us, And he strengthens us. And the word which is translated strengthening means to fill with strength for active service. It's only when we are perfected and confirmed and then filled with his strength as a result of our being men and women who resist the devil and who submit ourselves to the Lord at all times, draw near to him at all times, that we can resist the devil and he will flee and his spirit fills us with the necessary strength for accomplishing what He has called us to do and establish you. This is the idea of laying a foundation. That's the idea. In fact, all four of these verbs which are used to describe what God will do for us after we've suffered for a little while, they're all architectural terms. And it's no accident that in describing the church in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter uses the figure of speech of a building. We're living stones. This building that God is building. We're to put our faith in the God whose dominion is forever. I love this. We need not miss it. It's easy just to dismiss it. Don't miss it. Look at verse 11. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. This word translated dominion is the ability to acquire control and to retain it. The power is God's now and forever. You recall when Peter was listening to Jesus along with the other apostles prior to Jesus' arrest? And Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has gained permission to sift you like wheat. From whom did the devil have to get permission to sift Peter and the other apostles? God, the Father. Remember? He's not sovereign. God is. God's dominion extends over the devil. God always trumps the devil. Always. The devil is out for no good. 
God is out for your good and my good if we are His children. And more importantly, His glory. We need to understand that He is intent, our God, to make us more like Jesus. And what was the result of that statement? Satan has gained permission to sift not just Simon Peter, all of you like wheat. And then he says specifically to Peter, but when you return, Jesus said, I'm praying for you, but when you return, Jesus knew that he was going to fail. He was going to fall and shatter on his own pride and his own refusal to really listen to what the Lord had to say. But he was a different man thereafter. He was used by God to write this wonderful epistle. What great instruction and encouragement in this epistle. Even the verses which we're looking at today. The dominion of the Lord extended, certainly, to that end. It's been said that fear knocked at the door. Faith answered, and no one was there. Maybe it's the devil knocking on the door trying to instill fear in you and me. But if we react in faith, respond in faith, he runs, he hightails it. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Be men and women of faith. Be men and women who know the Lord and know the Word of God. So at the appropriate moment, we know where to go to the Lord. And what happens is we have him as our defender. Satan is a defamer. Jesus is our defender. Satan is a devourer. But Jesus is our deliverer. You remember that line in the Lord's Prayer? Deliver us from evil. The more modern translations get it right. Deliver us from the evil one. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the true meaning of Christmas. That you came to destroy the works of of the devil. Thank you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would help each one of us to take these truths and apply them to our lives. And as we resist the devil and submit to you, showing that we are firm in the faith, we will not simply survive, but we will thrive. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.